Welcome to the IC Disc Show. My name is David Spray, and today we're talking with Mike Kramer of Manage Hub in Chicago. Manage Hub is a really interesting specialty consulting firm that specializes in using the Malcolm Baldridge principles of total quality management to dramatically improve a company's quality and performance in a relatively short period of time. We talk about some great case studies of clients who he has worked with, the history of Baldridge, and also what a tremendously underutilized American-made system that Baldridge is. Mike really has a passion to disseminate this system high and wide to every U.S. company. If you've ever wanted to learn more about the benefit of exceptional quality and excellence in your own organization, this episode has a lot of great ideas and insights. Let's get to the show. Hi, Mike. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Uh, my pleasure. So where are you uh, calling in from today? Chicago, Illinois. Ah, excellent. Excellent. So are you having a nice fall day there in Chicago? Today is actually a beautiful day. Sun is shining, crisp, 65 to 70 degrees. It's amazing. Ah, that is If awesome. you asked me yesterday, I wouldn't have given you that, <laughs> that weather report. Understood. Yeah, that, that lake nearby can really... Uh, cause some big weather changes, can't it? Mm-hmm. Sure does. Beautiful city. Yeah, it is. It's one of one of my favorites. So let's uh, let's get started. So you have a really interesting business that I wanted to share with with my audience. So you are the CEO and founder of a company called Manage Hub. Is that correct? Correct. So what is Manage Hub, and uh, what do you, what do you guys what do you guys do? How do you describe it? Yeah, well, I help organizations engage their employees. The way I like to say it is helping leaders build great teams who help them build great companies. Because when you get your employees involved in business skills, scaling is so much easier than just reserving all of that heavy lifting to the, the executive leadership. That and and what does that look like? Like specifically, how do you uh, achieve that that engagement? Well, you know, oftentimes when a consultant goes into a firm and they they have some serious and difficult challenge that they're facing, the consultants will say, "Eat the elephant one bite at a time. You'll get through this." Are you familiar with that? Yes. Well, when you engage all of your employees. Eating the elephant at the same time related to the work that they're currently doing, you can eat the elephant very quickly. And while you're doing that, you're identifying your high performers, you're giving people opportunity to prove themselves as future leaders, and just the business takes on a whole new life. Yeah, I can see the the power of that instead of having a couple consultants, you know, encouraging one or two people in the company to eat the elephant by combining forces for everybody to work on the elephant. it's Yeah. And in most organizations, it's just not one challenge. I mean, if you could look at it department by department. There's, there's lots of individual and related challenges that, you know, if you get everybody involved working in the areas that they're most familiar with, the great ideas for improving and optimizing and scaling will, will come. Excellent. 
Yeah. And, and the way you go about that is with a combination of lean and Baldridge. Is that correct? Yeah. Baldridge. So tell us, I wonder tell how us, many of your listeners know about Baldridge. <laughs> I only heard about it because I've mentioned to you before. I seem to recall a Cadillac commercial from like 20 or 30 years ago that mentioned they won the Malcolm Baldridge Quality Award. And I, so anytime I'd heard of it, never heard of it since until I talked to you. So let's talk, talk about, you want to talk about Baldridge first, since probably well, more yeah, people know about lean. Yeah. yeah, because lean, lean is, people are more familiar with lean. Um, lean manufacturing, lean management. Uh, lean is very practical. Baldridge provides um, a theoretical framework that lean alone doesn't, uh, you know, really give people the, the point of view that they need as a leader who's trying to accomplish great things. So I like to okay. start with Baldridge and I can, I can kind of give you a little history if you'd like. Well, Malcolm Baldridge, he was Commerce Secretary who unfortunately passed away right before his, his trophy act uh, was enacted by Congress. I forget how to describe it. but Bald, So it was named Baldridge, which confuses a lot of people because what is Baldridge? Well, Baldridge is quality management. It's best management practices. And if Malcolm Baldridge had lived, it probably wouldn't have been named the Baldridge Award. It would have been called um, America's Quality Award or Total oh. Quality Management. Yeah, that's how that happened. He was a rodeo star, and he actually was in a rodeo and fell off his horse and passed away right before his trophy congressional act was passed. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's a bad story. But he's honored to this day by the Malcolm Baldrige Quality Award Program. And how long ago was that? Uh, that was in the 80s. Uh, the Baldrige okay. Act is 1987. Okay. But the history of Baldrige goes all the way back to Henry Ford, because that's really the inception of modern management theory. You know, Ford was responsible for past specialization and quality control and basic management theory that just took over American industry and transformed our economy into the world's rich, richest economy. And it just continued to have ripple effects around the world. And then it, other countries had their influence on improving basic management practices attributed to the United States. Most notably, by the way, Japan, post-World War II, America went two Americans went into Japan, Joseph Edwards Deming and Joseph Duran, fathers of Six Sigma, and helped Japan reorganize its economy around quality management. And anybody who's sixty or <laughs> older like me will remember that Japan uh, quickly earned a reputation of being able to manufacture high quality and low cost, you know, everything from transistor radios to automobiles. Right. Yeah. At the same time, America, uh, we lost our way when it came to quality management. And then in the 1970s, the U.S. Navy <laughs> was concerned about their own quality and looked to the world for inspiration. Lo and behold, they discovered Japan was an American success story. And they started to adopt a lot of those same quality management methods and develop something called total quality management or TQM. Oh, and so that was so the Navy? Yeah. That was the Navy, the Navy that developed the US it? Navy. Oh, wow. I never knew that. Yeah. And it was so successful, actually, that 
other branches of the military, other agencies of the U.S. government, and private sector companies within America, and most notably probably the freight industry, started to adopt TQM as well. And everybody started to realize how powerful being systematic about the way you manage an organization, how much impact that can have. Wow, that's really, that's really something that it started in the Navy. Yeah. You know, an interesting, an interesting thought about quality management is that if I ask you to name the processes in your organization, you probably think of operational processes. Am I right? Yes. But TQM and Baldridge identifies over 30 management processes that are required to engage and align your people processes and strategies so that the organization can function as a collective and harmonious mm-hmm. whole. And, and that's what makes uh, the difference between a very well-run organization, whether it's a professional services organization, a manufacturing firm, a nonprofit, whatever it might be, it doesn't matter because those basic management principles impact excellence in any type of organization. And that's why TQM was so po- uh, powerful and why the Baldridge um, Award even though you don't hear about it any longer because it, it basically took hold in the Fortune 1000 type companies, size companies, and it's just the way that business is conducted in that large environment. Unfortunately, it didn't, you know, it was created in the Reagan era and in trickle down economics, and it really never quite trickled down to small organizations. Right. So, so does the lean piece of the lean plus Baldridge success formula, is the lean piece more the operational aspect and the Baldridge is more the management aspect? Well, the lean piece operationalizes the theory behind Baldridge. Oh, so for example, okay. um, quality circles or stand-up meetings, having a set of rules and behaviors that everybody agrees to follow. So that, you know, you can align based upon those principles. All of that is like lean. And what Baldridge does is that identifies those 30 plus management processes, like having a way to capture employee issues and ideas for improvement and turn them into improvement initiatives or having a way to resolve customer complaints, not just you know, around the water cooler, but having a systematic approach that's repeatable, that's, that's Baldridge. So there, Baldridge shows you what the management requirements are. And lean is just such an elegant and simple way to put all of that theory into action. And it, it happens very fast. Hmm. A disorganized organization could become a highly organized organization in about three to six months. It's just that fast. Wow, that's really something. Do you have, I was going to talk about this a bit later, but let's dive into it now. So could you give like some examples of of, like top types of companies you've worked with? And uh, because I love learning by case study and these can be anonymous, you know, that you don't, you don't have to list the company if not appropriate, but you have a couple examples you could give just for context for the listeners to, to start to have. Yeah, it's it's really spanned multiple industries. Regional retail firms, I've helped professional services organizations, most notably in IT. 
I've helped medical-type practices, whether it's physical therapy and occupational health or medical practices, you know, with MDs. I've helped nonprofits. Every organization, you know, it really does... Baldridge benefits every type of organization. We all have the same kinds of problems. We've got customer issues. We've got employee, uh, you know, hiring and retention, life cycle. There's inefficiencies uh, and waste and quality that results in, you know, customers leaving. All the aggravation that drives everybody crazy and uh, keeps them up late at night worrying. Mm -hmm. Um, Baldridge just makes all that fog lift and disappear. So do you, could you give like a, an, an actual customer kind of case study example that yeah. comes to mind? Um, not too long ago in a professional services organization, they lost a, a large uh, client, about a $600,000 a year client. It was a re- uh, repeating business. And okay. it kind of, it caused shockwaves within the organization because, you know, it's pretty hard to sell a, a client that size. And, you know, the idea is that once uh, that client is sold, they're going to be a client for m- many years. And when they left, they kind of did a postmortem and tried to identify what did they do to lose them. And they discovered that, you know, they had a lot of quality issues. Customers, the customer complained in multiple ways and they didn't feel that they had a proper response. And so they lost them. And when they looked at the root cause, they saw that they had a lot of operational issues. There was a lack of communication inside their professional services firm. And when problems were identified by certain people in the organization, they did not communicate that to leaders who could take swift action. And there was really no way for the improvements that would have been required to satisfy the client to occur very quickly. Um, mm. so they, they really lacked all of those Baldridge management processes that would have allowed them to be resilient and flexible and responsive. So they lost the client. So we just started to build those Baldridge processes out inside their organization. And very rapidly, they went from consistently getting, you know, poor scores for satisfaction to exceeding the scale that they used from one to 10, they were getting 11s and higher. So wow. it was just so fast. Um, and the benefits to the organization weren't limited just to client satisfaction because client satisfaction is kind of the canary in the coal mine. If you're losing sure. clients or clients aren't satisfied, it's an indication that there's a lot of problems inside how the organization is being run. So their productivity increased, their profitability increased, you know, every, everything improves when you start running. What a great example. Could you, could you maybe even, yeah, I'm just really fascinated in, by the subject and I really probably know professional services better than any other industry. Mm. Like, could you give just like a specific example, either of what, like, one of the customer complaints that never was escalated or maybe like a process that was broken to just really kind of give some granularity. Like, was it that the receptionist frequently didn't answer the phone and it just rolled to a general mailbox? Was it, you know, can you just give it a little more detail? Yeah. Well, in most professional services firms, they're, they're managing project work. So whether it's, you know, law practice or accounting or IT, there's usually 10 or 15 
traditional types of work that's performed that can be mm-hmm. reduced to some kind of a project template. So in this okay. organization, they the, the project management was allowed to be developed by individual practitioner. So they really didn't adopt a uniform project uh, management approach. And okay. so they had multiple manager ways instead of one organization way. Okay. And what this did was it impeded the way that the senior leaders communicated with one another. It wasn't easy for them to share information because everybody was using their own approach versus the organization hmm. organization's approach. Because it was not a structured ap- approach, everybody had their little systems that they you you know developed in spreadsheets, you know, and right. again, it, it wasn't shared. But it was necessary for the individual partner to use those approaches just to keep track of what's going on, you know? So again, it was everybody had the right idea what they individually needed, but it didn't translate into a systematic company-wide, firm-wide approach. And it was to the detriment of everyone, including the client and the organization. So what we did was we developed a uniform professional services, we selected a professional services automation tool. I'm sure many of your uh, listeners have those. But just because, by the way, you have a professional services automation tool, it doesn't mean that it's working for you. Organizations I work with, they have a, a PSA type tool, but it's not configured properly. It's not mm-hmm. uh, doing what uh, that PSA tool was originally intended to do, which is to create uniform structure and maximize free-flowing information to everyone who needs it in an accountable and transparent way. So usually the PSA tools need to be almost relaunched and configured in a way that it's really doing what the organization needs. Thank you for that that example, because now I I really get it. I started my accounting career at Arthur Anderson, you know, who was based in Chicago, your your hometown. And and their big thing right off the bat, everybody was sent to St. Charles, a former learning campus. I think it was a former women women's college, right out west of Chicago in St. Charles. And and I realized, like as you're describing that how effective that was because they brought everybody in. You literally did not show up to the office like day one of work. You showed up in St. Charles and it was two weeks of indoctrination, basically. And this is the process we follow. This is how we do everything. And then when you got back to your office, you then had been kind of trained in the Arthur Anderson way and everybody did it that same way, which means that if you're a new staff person and you're working on multiple different clients, all those projects were managed the same way. So I can imagine if they, if each manager did things their own way, how difficult it would be to develop staff because you don't have a uniform methodology to teach, to train, you know, for them to learn. So I can I can picture the scenario that you're describing and why it would be so counterproductive. And and really if you think about it, Arthur Anderson was huge, right? And they mm-hmm. were able to maintain quality and reputation because of that structure that they developed over time. That was, by the way, most likely continuously improved. Now, uh, for the listener who has 
in managing a smaller organization, they can kind of understand, well, gosh, I have a lot of these problems. I need to start operating my firm the way Arthur Anderson, you know, uh, mm-hmm. that kind of structure or Price Waterhouse or whoever, you know, because that look at any successful large organization and you're going to see a lot of structure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's the only way, you know, people can't communicate telepathically. And but when you get large, you have to somehow engage and align all of your people so that you're kind of functioning as one, you know, large and powerful unit. The only way you can do that is if you have these systems that people can communicate with each other asynchronously. By the way, you know, I'm all for having meetings, but the way I suggest organizations have meetings is way different than in most organizations. Most organizations currently have them because meetings are used for brainstorming. They're used for problem solving. That's just not efficient, especially in a professional services environment where time is money. If you're going to have a meeting, it's got to be dedicated to accountability and transparency and identifying blockers or potential risks and creating um, a path to solving it between the meetings. So just the relevant people are involved. You create the visibility that you have a potential issue, but then in between the meetings, it's solved by the people who need to need to be involved. This way, you're not wasting everybody's time in meetings. You know, mm-hmm. just a black hole of meetings. And I'm sure that everyone who's listening is frustrated by meetings. And it's, there's an easy way to fix meetings. Yeah. Yeah. And I keep going, I'm going back to my Arthur Anderson example. So I was only there a couple of years and left uh, 30 years ago. But I remember, and I was on the audit side, that, that the, the staff person would, you know, would do their auditing of some, you know, part of the business. And then uh, a person above them would review it, but review it asynchronously. And then they would write their review notes and questions, you know, like, you know, I, like I noticed that, you know, such and such wasn't done, or I noticed that, you know, you did this, you know, why was that? And then, so the, that would go to the senior or the senior would do that. And then it would go back to the staff and the staff would do what's called clearing the the points where they would mm-hmm. write their, you know, their responses and comments and basically satisfy the concerns. And then the manager on the job would then review that, you know, improved product and the manager, they would have additional questions and pointers and stuff. And then it would go back. The manager would send it down to this to that senior to clear those points. And then once that was done, then the project would go to the partner in same thing. And so by the time everything was done, it had been reviewed three, you know, three times by three different people. And um, and the thing about it, we had very few meetings. I mean, like we'd all be in an audit room, you know, six of us working. But there was really very little conversation because everybody was doing their detailed work, you know, you know, writing the memos or they were or their boss was reviewing and, you know, kind of making the notes. So so it's funny. I didn't until just now, I didn't fully appreciate what a good system that was and how well thought out it was that they didn't just wake up one morning and that's what they had. Yeah. 
<laughs> exactly. But, you know, in uh, more complex professional services environments, that isn't as routine as, a, as an audit. Mm-hmm. Because an audit, you know, they, there's checklists and there's, sure. you know, a standard approach that it's almost a commodity. Yeah, you, know? you do it every year, right? So, you, you, so there's some efficiencies that can be gained, you know, by doing it every year. So anyway, so go ahead. Yeah, there's efficiencies that can be gained, but you're about to talk about more complex one-off projects, right? Yeah, because in in most high-paid professional environments, there's a specific and unique type of client requirement that taps into the collective knowledge of the firm, but it might be unique and new, right? So Mm -hmm. there isn't really that standard a checklist or a project that they can just turn on and start the audit process. Right. There's thought, right. there's thought, there's knowledge. And that leads to a whole nother uh, level of, you know, this kind of Baldrige type excellence because knowledge management and retaining and controlling that knowledge so that it's not lost to, I don't know, the ether, you know, mm-hmm. uh, because once all that heavy lifting is done and you figure it out for one client, all of a sudden you're an expert that 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 wisdom can be leveraged. Yeah. But in a lot of professional service environments, they have a very difficult time even finding the the individual within the firm who has that expertise. Right. Let alone the knowledge that they created, which is valuable IP. And it's probably got a, you know, a freshness uh, sticker on it. It's, it's not going to last forever. So if you're going right. to leverage it, you need to leverage it soon. Right. And you need a new levels of sophistication, uh, Baldridge level sophistication to, you know, create that kind of awareness. That is really, really interesting and helpful. Could we talk about another example for maybe a different industry other than professional services like manufacturing or distribution? Or do you have a project like that that comes to mind? I'll give you an example of uh, that indirectly may even benefit professional services. So let's say you have just a one one location office, but you'd like to expand to multiple states. Um, okay. I worked with a uh, medical practice that had three locations, and they they wanted to open a, a fourth. And I said, okay, you're going to open a fourth. At that point, they still had a lot of operational type issues, customer complaints. The the organization was very dependent on its professional team and the individual professionals really owned the relationship with their clients. Mm-hmm. And so it was very hard to retain control over future sales because if a professional left, I mean, the client would probably go with the right. professional thing. So I think that those types of problems impact almost every kind of professional service. In this case, it was medical, but mm-hmm. probably law firms and accounting firms have the same kind of issues, especially when it comes to their partners. So I said, okay, let's use, so I told them, let's use this opportunity of opening this fourth office to uh, create almost a blueprint for opening up all future offices down to what goes in which drawers because they had a lot of equipment and things that they needed. Hmm. Um, and so if we could almost stamp these, these new locations out in the future, the first, the first time we do it, we're still going to be, have a learning curve. But by the third time we do it, we're going to be expert at this. Right. And almost make it like a franchise, but it's all owned by and controlled by one organization. 
Mm-hmm. At the same time, what we did was we developed a, a patient advocate so that the, um, the client relationship was really owned now by the medical practice. They were assigned to a professional, but quality control, check-ins, satisfaction, any issues would always go through the advocate. And the advocate, which, by the way, probably sounds a lot like a partner, right, in a larger uh, practice, right. uh, also was constantly looking for ways to provide more services to the, the client. And so they, they became, we took them from a probably three professional, pr- pr- they had OT and PT, physical therapy, occupational therapy, and speech therapy, and we expanded it to maybe seven or eight different disciplines. And we almost holistically triaged these patients for every possible approach that could benefit the, the patient. And mm. it was just a remarkable thing. And, and the relationship that that kind of focus by the advocate, the patient advocate, created a, a wonderfully loyal client base. This organization grew from three locations to, I think, by the time I left, they were about at seven or eight locations and in multiple states. And they went from 40 professionals to about uh, 250 or 300 professionals. And they they just multiplied their sales by probably uh, 20-fold. Wow. So, yeah, it was just this remarkable, remarkable expansion, but it was controlled because Every patient ultimately had the same type of experience. It didn't, mm-hmm. de- it didn't depend on being assigned one professional or another. They had such amazing control over their client's experience and the holistic, almost Mayo Clinic type holistic approach to treating the whole patient that it was just remarkable. And by the way, I don't know if this impacts any of your listeners, but we expanded who the customer was because in this particular case, it was a pediatric practice. And it wasn't just the child who was considered the patient. The parents were a patient. The siblings were a patient. I'm sorry. The parents were a customer class. The siblings of the patient were a customer class. The teachers were a customer class. The doctors who referred in were a customer class. And we figured Mm. out what each of those classes needed in order for us to be viewed as a very successful service provider. Mm. And I just, I just wonder, maybe, can you tell me, are there other customer indirect stakeholders groups that could, would benefit from the kinds of services your listeners perform? Because that, that could open up a whole world of opportunity for them. That is, that is really interesting. Because obviously somebody's referring their clients to their firm. Right. So they're a, they're a customer class. You know, the objective of the firm should be to delight the referring partner. Right. That's, I'll be curious to see uh, what kind of feedback we, we receive on that. Um, worth a lot of money to, to the uh, firm. Yeah. I have another, I have something to suggest to your listeners. Sure. Um, and, you know, Baldridge is managed by the National Institute of Standards and Technology. The acronym is NIST, N-I-S-T. Okay. And if they, if they do a little search for Baldridge 2020 report, the NIST a few years back published this report. 
and it compiles a lot of the impacts different types of organizations have had. And it, the impacts relate to customer satisfaction and employee engagement and productivity and strategies implemented, everything. And what's interesting about this report is it's, it's kind of like a dream book. If, if your listeners will download it, it's just a piece published by NIST. If they download it and they kind of scan it because they're not going to read all 150 pages, you know, sure. Um, they're going to, and they start right, writing down what they would like to achieve in their own organization. They're going to see what the impact that Baldrige can have if they adopt it. And very interestingly, in the really smaller organizations that I've helped, because Baldrige, when they, the award winners are typically Fortune 1000 sized organizations or Fortune 5000 size. We're able to accomplish and achieve the same kinds of results that are reported in the Baldrige 2020 report. For example, so yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I just want to make sure I have the right report pulled up. It's uh, Baldrige 2020, an executive's guide to the criteria for performance excellence, 132 yes. pages. Yes, it's amazing. Okay. It's just amazing. It inspires leaders to think like, this is what we can accomplish. And you can accomplish it so quickly. You know, I, you know the, the, the level of customer satisfaction we've achieved, 98% customer satisfaction. And, and that's from that organization, by the way, that lost that $600,000. Employee engagement is such a huge issue now. Number one, it's very hard to even attract talent let alone retain them long-term. And we get, traditionally, it's very difficult not to get 100% employee engagement. And just recently, I started working with a IT firm. They, they had lost a couple of their employees in the first couple of months of the engagement because of the accountability and transparency that we started to impose. And all of these people wanted to come back. Because they simply cannot find an organization that would give them that level of opportunity. They started to hear from their friends, you know, hey, this is really having an impact. We're finally being heard. We're, we're doing great things. And they wanted to come back. Wow, that is, well, I am certainly going to, to peruse this, uh, this report. It's, I mean, right off the bat, just the cover is really engaging, just the colors and the pictures. I mean, it really has, a, it gives you a sense that this is really well done. So I can't believe how fast the, t the time is going. Oh my goodness. Is the time well, going? The time, the, the time waits for no man, right? Or yeah. no two men on a podcast. What, Can I tell you um, one other? Uh, I was just going to ask. Yeah. yeah, I was just going to ask you that. That what else should should we uh, should we add? You got you got to hear this because you know or, organizations that I've worked with have had phenomenal exits, phenomenal exits, and they weren't even looking for an exit. Their reputation in the industry for excellence became um, so well known so quickly. By the way that PE firms and others have discovered them and started a conversation about an acquisition. We've had, and by the way, all in all cases, they, it was all cash. And the wow. terms, yeah, and the terms were uh, very pro-seller. Hmm. 11 times EBITDA was one of them. Wow. 
Yeah, 11 times in an environment that only usually gets four times. And the reason wow. for this is that it was a truly excellent firm with that was not overly dependent on its people because there's that's where a lot of risk is. And that's where, right. yeah, who's going to buy a firm where they, they feel that it's dependent on specific people doing specific work? Mm-hmm. So, and again, uh, that one was a professional services firm. And then uh, in a retail environment, we got 18 times EBITDA, all cash. Unbelievable. In retail. Wow. wow. I, know. I know. It was just an amazing thing. So that's the power of Baldridge. When, it, when you can demonstrate to an independent third party the value the extreme value of your organization to the point where they're willing to pay a premium for it because they just can't find anything as good, low risk. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm not suggesting that people sell their companies. I'm just, sure. That's just an interesting uh, byproduct of Baldridge is that you start to grow, you start to easily scale, the growing and slowing pains, you know, the worrying starts to ebb. The customer complaints turn into compliments. The employees, they become engaged. Everyone slowly becomes a future leader in your growing organization. And you're going to need, you're going to need that because mm-hmm. you're going to start growing fast. That's what allows you to scale. So slowly everyone, as they take those bites, they learn how to become a leader. That's that's awesome. And I wanted to just uh, clarify something on quality because quality, I think, is a term that has different meanings to different people. And mm-hmm. correct me if I'm wrong, but I think at the at the most core definition of quality, isn't it really like that it means meet specifications, that it's really a measurement of consistency? Yeah. That's the, basically the essence of Six Sigma, which um, at the core is that the more, the more consistent you can make a process, the less likely there's going to be variation. So that's, that's the goal. And with that, you could think of McDonald's. It may not be the best burger. Some would say it is, you know, but some would say, but it, it's the most consistent for its value proposition. Yeah, it's I, I've noticed this dynamic in restaurants where like there's some restaurants that their menu is unchanged for 20 years and, and the 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 recipe is unchanged, the the quality and flavor is unchanged. And then I noticed other restaurants that their menu just keeps, you know, kind of changing. And I've always wondered if it's that the second type of restaurant that the chef just gets bored. Because, you know, you know, some customer may only come in twice a year. And so for them having that same meal two times a year, there's nothing that's uh, boring about that. But that the chef who's made that meal, you know, multiple times a day for 365 days. I just wonder if, if the reason these menus change is just because the chefs get bored, not because there was any customer feedback that they wanted uh, the menu to change. Well, it could be, but those restaurants are also the ones that probably over time will, you know, go out of business Yeah, because they, they cannot transfer that creativity to, you know, a new chef. 
Right. Uh, but then look at the, you know, upper scale restaurants like Cheesecake Factory, others that are, are beautiful restaurants, but they, it's more, you go to one Cheesecake Factory to, to another, they're almost the same experience, identical. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They figured out how to create, you know, they, they'll change their menu, but it's going to be consistent across all locations. But I, I, you just made me think of something here because you're, your listeners who offer very unique and creative type services that are almost unique to the the client may be asking themselves, well, does this relate to me? How do, because every client is, is pretty much different, they may say. And they're coming to me because I'm the creative genius that is going to solve their, their unique problem. And to them, I, I, I say this, that the creativity, we're, we're not going to be able to capture their creativity in, in a bottle and, and reproduce that. That's what makes them unique. But the whole process, of even the creative process, we can take that and we can identify what the fundamental elements are and we can teach their team how to employ those same fundamental elements in any a similar project. Hmm. Uh, Discovery steps, knowledge, research, all of those fundamental steps can be put into some kind of a project plan so that it isn't just the wild west of figuring out the solution, but it's more a structured creative uh, process that could be taught to their team. That is really interesting. So with that, why don't we move to my last question? So this is what I call the curveball question. I think I learned, I think I learned this from Tim Ferriss. So if you could go back in time and give some advice to the 25 year old version of Mike Kramer, what advice or insight that would you like to share with that younger version of yourself? What do you know now that you didn't fully understand or realize back then? Mm -hmm. Well, it's very interesting because Mike, I'm a CPA by profession. So, and I worked in accounting for a couple of years, but quickly realized that I really wanted to be an entrepreneur. And of all things, I started a pharmaceutical repackaging business that was licensed by the FDA as a manufacturer in the DEA and ultimately around 30 plus states. And I struggled like most young business owners in those early days with those growing and slowing pains. Until I learned about quality management, mostly from the FDA. And as I started to impose more and more structure on every aspect of the organization, and I started to use that structure to empower my people so that I was delegating responsibility to them with confidence, because no leader is going to delegate any responsibility if they feel that it's, the work is going to be subpar. Right. <laughs> no right. good leader is going to do that. But what, when you have the accountability and visibility you need and to retain the command and control, now all of a sudden you awaken the potential of your people and you're able to leverage them in a, in a way that's extraordinary. So the advice I would give myself is adopt quality management as early in the life cycle of your business as possible. And the appropriate time is when you want to start hiring employees. So if in, for the solo entrepreneurs or solo practitioners who, are, who may be listening, if you want to expand your practice beyond yourself and grow something, 
then the, the best way to do that when you hire your employee is identify what processes they're going to be performing and make it part of the hiring process to make it their responsibility to help you create that systematic approach that has to be documented with step-by-step operating procedures. It'll make it so much easier for you if you're not the only one taking the bite out of the elephant, but as soon as you hire your first person, you're engaging them to help you build that scalable infrastructure, and it's gonna go so much faster, and then you're gonna hire your third person following the same rule, and as you expand and expand and expand, all of a sudden, you have your future leaders. Anybody who is excited about this it has a future with your organization because everybody who you keep on your island has to be for innovation and growth of your organization. Otherwise, why keep them? No, I, I, I love it. So how might you summarize that for your kind of ADD 25-year-old self in like one or two sentences? What would be huh. the advice you, you, would you give? You think that I had ADD? I'm, I don't think think you do. I'm just <laughs> I'm just wondering. I'm thinking because I know it's interesting how you know how how many entrepreneurs do because it's difficult right. for them to function inside a uh, a team environment. Yep. Um, I so know. Uh, I interrupted your question. What was it again? Oh, so if you were if you were summarizing that advice to your 25 year old self, and you just wanted to give them like one sentence insight kind of summarizing the last couple minutes, how might you distill it down to one sentence? All right. I have to, I'll distill it down to one sentence, but first I have to explain that when I started my business, there was no, no one for me to turn to. Baldridge, I started my business in the same era that Baldridge was in was enacted. I, I didn't know about Baldridge. If there's one gift that I'm giving your listener, it's that we have a national standard of excellence that identifies um, these 30 plus management processes that any but simple things that anybody can start using now to you know improve their organization. I had to learn by the school of hard knocks. And it, it was very frustrating and time consuming. But if I had to give advice today, I would say avoid guru approaches. Do not okay. go to the best selling shelves of they're, they're going to tell you the what you need to do and get you excited about, you know, potentially what could be, but they're not, they, they generally don't tell you how to do it. Right. Um, to learn how to do it, go to mist.gov slash Baldridge and um, download the Baldridge framework. And it's going to mm-hmm. show you the theoretical framework and it's going to all make logical sense to you. And then I hope they'll also go to managehub.pro and download the Manage Hub strategy and the Lean Team Building game and all the other free resources that they can access right from my website because I'm on a mission to help business leaders leverage the Baldrige framework for the benefit of themselves, their employees, their companies, and our economy. Awesome. Uh, A little bit patriotic uh, mission here. No, I, I love it. So if people want to reach you so they can go to the website, which is managehub.pro. And then do you accept LinkedIn requests? Of course. Of course. So, and that's Michael, uh, Michael Kramer. Yep. Michael Kramer. And you're based in Chicago. And uh, so that's one that way they can reach you. Any other way you'd want them to reach out to you? Email? Sure. Or they, they can email me, mike at managehub.pro. Okay. 
that is easy enough. Well, Mike, I can't believe how quickly the the time flew by. I really appreciate you carving time, time out of your day to share your experience and insights and passion for Baldridge and, it's, and, and to help spread the word because it sounds like we have this great American system that is just grossly underutilized. Yeah, sadly. But now we're going we're gonna to start using it. That's awesome. Well, hey, Mike, thanks again for, for your time. It was really fun, and I hope you have a great afternoon. Thank you for having me. There you. we have it. Another great episode. Thanks for listening in. If you want to continue the conversation, go to icdiscshow.com. That's icdiscshow.com. And we have additional information on the podcast, archived episodes, as well as a button to be a guest. So if you'd like to be a guest, go select that and fill out the information. And we'd love to have you on the show. So that's it. We'll be back next time with another episode of the IC Disc Show.